This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. This episode is brought in part to you by Audible, your go-to destination for thrilling audio entertainment. Whether you're looking for a hair-raising experience to enjoy while you're on the move or eager to dive into sinister and shocking tales, Audible has an exclusive collection of thrillers from best-selling authors that will keep you on the edge of your seat. Like James Patterson's first audio-only thriller, The Coldest Case. Experience stories like never before, where every chilling detail is brought to life by captivating sound design. Plus, as an Audible member, choose one title a month to make yours forever. And now, new members can try Audible free for 30 days. Just visit audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. That's audible.com slash WonderyPod or text WonderyPod to 500-500. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Margaret Brennan in Washington, and this week on Face the Nation, the spring to-do list on Capitol Hill gets even longer, and the Republican Party's struggle to define itself continues. Congress scrambles to deal with rail safety and environmental concerns. Yet another Norfolk Southern train derailed yesterday in Ohio. Plus, a key Democrat says he's had it when it comes to the nation's debt. It can't be this total political division. It's not my fault. It's your fault. It's their fault. We'll talk with West Virginia Senator Joe Manchin. Then, the Republican race for the 2024 nomination is on, and key Republicans are picking sides. But the bigger question is, what exactly does the party stand for? We had a Republican party that was ruled by freaks, neocons, globalists, open border zealots, and fools. As more candidates consider jumping in, one is opting out. It was a tough decision, but I've decided that I will not be a candidate for the Republican nomination for president. Former Maryland Governor Larry Hogan tells our Robert Costa why he made that decision. And we'll talk to Illinois Democrat Governor J.B. Pritzker. He's being recruited to help President Biden's expected re-election campaign. And was COVID-19 a result of a lab accident in Wuhan, China? New intelligence reports in the Department of Energy and FBI conflict with other agency reviews. Ohio Republican Brad Wenstrup is heading up a new committee investigating the origins of the virus. We'll talk to him. Then former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb will help us sort through it all. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. Saturday's Norfolk Southern derailment in Springfield, Ohio, was the fourth train derailment in Ohio in the last five months, including the one in East Palestine that spilled toxic chemicals. Norfolk Southern tells CBS News that no one was injured and no toxic substances were on board the train involved in yesterday's incident. The CEO of Norfolk Southern is expected to testify before a Senate panel on Thursday. We want to begin the show with Democratic Senator Joe Manchin, who joins us from Charleston, West Virginia. Good morning to you, Senator. Uh, I want to start on that. Good morning, that. Brennan. Thank, uh, Margaret, thanks for having me. I want to start on that derailment. Um, <laughs> the, the president last week praised bipartisan railway safety legislation that would uh, have new rules for trains carrying hazardous materials, increase fines for safety violations, phase in newer cars. Uh, will you vote for it? Is that sufficient? 
Yes, I'm going to be supporting that. We need to do it. Back in 2015 in Mount Carbon in West Virginia, we had a derailment, 27 cars, uh, tanker cars carrying Balkan oil uh, went off the tracks and derailed and exploded and caused a tremendous uh, problem there. And it was very, very dangerous. It could have been a little, a lot worse if it had been a little farther down the tracks. Could have torn up a whole town. But with that, you know, we were recommended that uh, the uh, electronic pneumatic brakes should be something, should be considered that might prevent this routine maintenance checks and auditings and things of this sort. I don't think any of that has been done. And it's time for us to get serious about this. We're moving many, many products, many more products on the rails and on our roads than we ever did before. And we have a lot of people who don't want any pipelines. Pipelines would help alleviate a lot of this problem with the oil that we need in our country and we will be using for quite some time to do it safer. But out of sight, out of mind, they're thinking if you don't have a pipeline, you won't be using the product. Well, that's far from the truth and this is the results of people just not making good decisions and it's what's broken in uh, in, Char in West Virginia and, and yeah. broken across the country as far as in Washington the politics I want it's broken I want to be fixed I want to come back to energy in a moment um, you're saying it's broken you gave a pretty fiery speech a few days ago in the Senate yeah. um, you're at odds with the White House and with many in your own party because you are saying that Democrats need to talk about out-of-control spending and are refusing to negotiate you did ding Republicans for not offering specific cuts if you are the deal maker you seem to be positioning yourself there where is it that you see room for negotiation well Margaret first of all I encourage uh, speaker Kevin McCarthy I was hoping that he would first of all take uh, things off the table that doesn't uh, cause a conflict, but most, most, most importantly, sit down with the president and reached out to the White House. They did sit down, had a meeting. I'm encouraging much, much more of that. But what we can do is, can't we get together and just talk about how do we have this much debt accumulated in this, in this short of a period of time? Within 10 years, Margaret, we have accumulated the greatest amount of debt in the history of our country in the shortest period of time. Can't we at least find out what we did and how we expanded? I know the COVID did so much of it, but you know we're past the COVID yeah. uh, problems, and what we need to do is get back to normal. But we've gone from $3.5 trillion in spending to over $6.2 trillion in spending every year in the last 10 years. That's just unacceptable. You've got to sit down. Anybody that thinks we don't have a problem in Washington, anybody that thinks that the politics is not broken in Washington, is not living in reality, does not want to face the, the okay. facts and the truth. So, so what is the truth here? Because Social Security and Medicare make up nearly 40% of spending in 2023. If no one is touching those programs, where are you finding the cuts? Well, first of all, just do our job on time. We've been told that if we just had a budget done, we don't even have a budget anymore. The president is, is a month late in putting his budget out, which will come out next week. But I don't see the House or the Senate bringing a budget forward. And basically, by a piece of legislation was passed back in 1985, we're supposed to have our budgets yeah. from the House and the Senate done by April the 1st. The president basically submits his in February and by September the 30th. I'm told there's billions and billions of dollars of savings just right there if we just do it on time. Sure, we're not but that's even doing not, that. that right. That's what I say. It's not working. That's, but, but that, it gets a downward but, trajectory, basically. And yeah, capping, but more has to be done. How about capping some of the done than that? I mean, yeah, you, capping you know, some of the discretionary spending. You okay? Well, there's a lot <laughs> to talk about right there, but I want to ask you: What is Joe? Hey, hey, what is Joe Manchin looking for in this deal? Are you looking for your pit permitting reform, for example, that Democrats didn't deliver on, though they had told you that you would have an agreement on? Are you looking for that to be tucked into a potential bill um, in this uh, agreement that you're saying has to be struck between Republicans and Democrats? Well, rather tucking something in, we're not trying to hide anything. Basically, we don't do permitting, and we don't have permitting reform in America. We're not going to meet the challenges and be energy independent, energy secured. If you're not energy secured, you're definitely not going to be a superpower of the world, and depending on other parts of the world to provide what you won't do for yourself. That has to be done. I don't care what side of the arena you're on, if you want transmission, if you want pipelines, if you realize we're going to have a balanced energy proposal, that's what the Inflation Reduction Act was for energy security. The administration, this administration has touted that as strictly an environmental bill. It's good for the environment, but it's also very, very necessary for us to have the fossil mm -hmm. energy using it better and cleaner than anywhere in the world to have the security we need. That's what we need to do, and that's what they've been avoiding. You yeah. have to have permitting. If not, all this is going to be voided. 
I want to ask you about uh, what appears to be some separation between you and the president. You were quoted a few days ago as saying, we're just in different ball games. We're not even in the same ballpark on many things. Are you going to endorse Joe Biden if he runs for reelection? Oh, there's plenty of time for the election. This is the problem with America right now. We start an election every time there's a cycle coming up. Yeah, he's up. the leader of your party. Uh, I, uh, I, no, the bottom line is let's see who's involved. Let's wait until we see who all the players are. Let's just wait until it all comes out. My main purpose right now is to work for my country and my, and my state. That's my responsibility. I'm not going to make my uh, announcement for anything until the end of the year. I'm not going to make a decision what my political position is going to be or where I'm going to do for my political future. I won't do it until the end of the year. i got too much work to do now. Your political future, you mean the question of whether you personally are going to run for re-election in the Senate in West Virginia. Your Republican Governor Jim Justice says he's going to run for your seat or he thinks he's got a good shot at it. Why haven't you made up sure. your mind? As to the bottom line, I got plenty of time to make up my mind. The election is not until November 2024. We don't even file until January of 2024. Yeah. And to be running and basically not basically uh, looking at the problems you have, we've got a runaway debt. We've got inflation yeah. that's killing people. We've got an unsecured energy. We have a border that's out of control. You're telling me we're in the same ball game in the same ballpark? I don't think so. <laughs> you said, let's see who all the players are when it comes to running for president. You've said you're not running for president. Is that an open question, though? Who, I didn't who do you say think? that. I didn't say anything about that. I, the bottom line is I will make my political decision in December, whatever it may be. To run for president? I'm not taking anything off the table, and I'm not, put, and I'm not putting anything on the table. I said I'll make a decision in Jan, at, this, at the end of this year. You'll make a decision at the end of this year as to, that. as to who you will endorse for what president? What my political future will be. What, what, no, but for president. What I will be involved with, how I'll be involved. I will be making any decisions I make politically will not be done until the end of the year. I'm focused on fixing what's wrong with Washington. And the politics are so toxic. The more you talk about this party, that party, what candidate and this candidate, look at what you have facing you right now. You've got inflation. Mm -hmm. You've got basically energy. You've got it's unsecured borders. You've got geopolitical unrest. And we're talking about everything but that. We, are, we have a lot to talk about, and Senator Manchin, you're welcome back. <laughs> uh, we got to leave it there because... I'm happy to come back, Margaret, anytime. <laughs> um, Senator Manchin, I was just talking about not wanting to talk about campaign 2024, but we're going to do that. It is up and running because frontrunner, former President Trump, was in the Washington area yesterday speaking at a conservative political gathering where he had some pretty tough talk about what would happen if he is not reelected. Our Robert Costa spoke exclusively with former Maryland Governor Larry Hogan about why he is not jumping in. You think by sitting out, the field maybe is a little tighter? I hope so. It's a little harder for Trump to get that nomination. I sure hope so. Bob's here. We're going to be talking with him next, and you'll hear more from that interview with Governor Hogan. What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Man, that sunset is gorgeous. Grill, patio, sunset. Hard to get better than that. Unless you're browsing Carvana's inventory while you soak it all in. Oh, burger time. So sit back, get comfortable. Carvana's got thousands of cars under $20,000 just waiting for you. I could stay here forever. Carvana, where car buying meets comfort meets convenience. Download the app or visit Carvana.com today. So far, there are only three major Republican candidates in the 2024 campaign, but more than a dozen are still undecided. Our Robert Costa spoke to former Maryland Governor Larry Hogan on Friday, and Bob, he told you he's not running. Did he explain why? He did. The former Maryland governor said he felt conflicted as he made this decision. 
Let's hear what he had to say. I was struggling uh, because my heart was telling me to run. My head was telling me, no, that this does not make sense for a whole host of reasons. And my gut was flipping back and forth. So it really came down to if I wasn't 100 percent convinced that I shouldn't do it. You were torn. I was torn. Toughest decision of your political career? Absolutely. Toughest decision I ever made. Politically, by staying out of the race, it's a smaller field, maybe tougher for Trump to get the nomination. I didn't want to have a uh, pileup of a bunch of people fighting. Right now you have, you know, Trump and DeSantis at the top of the field, soaking up all the oxygen, getting all the attention, and then a whole lot of the rest of us in single digits. And uh, the more of them you have, the less chance you have for somebody rising up. So, Bob, he doesn't see a path for himself. He worries about too many challengers carving a path, essentially, for the former president. What else did he have to say about the campaign? Margaret, as you know, there is this lingering divide between traditional conservative Republicans and the Trump wing of the Republican Party. The former governor said as he looked at the race, he saw a narrow path for Republicans like himself as they look to 2024. Let's hear what he had to say about that. Well, there's no question it was it's challenging. Um, there's a big, big fight for the I, th- I would say the heart and soul of the Republican Party that I've been talking about for years. It's still going on. We're making progress, though. I mean, it went from about 90 percent of the Republican primary base was behind Trump to about 60 percent after January 6th to it's down to about 30 percent now. There are, there's about two thirds of the people in the Republican Party, while they might have supported Trump and Trump's policies, they really are ready to consider moving in a different but direction. He's still leading the polls. He's leading in the polls, and uh, there's no question it's a he's a formidable challenge. But I think, you know, uh, a year is an eternity in politics, and the first primaries are about a year away. So I think what it looks like today, uh, it could be completely different than what it looks like a year from now. You are a two-term governor just left office. Uh, You've long been connected to the legacy of Ronald Reagan, conservative movement politics. Is your decision to not run in 2024 in any way an acknowledgement that that party, that version of the Republican Party is fading or even gone? You know, I don't feel that way at all. Um, I think we certainly uh, went off in the wrong direction. And we're not back on track. It's going to take a while. We're not there yet. I I, I would say the party of Reagan is not dead uh, and neither is the party of Trump. How serious is this moment for your party in terms of beating former President Trump? If he wins the White House again, what would that mean for American democracy? Well, I'm I'm hopeful that it's not going to happen. But what does it mean if it does? Uh, Then I think it's uh, we're going to have to do some soul searching. We're going to be digging out for a long time. But uh, look, we've lost seven out of the last eight popular votes for in the presidential race. And we've lost, we've had three horrible election cycles uh, where we should have done, had a huge pickup uh, in the last election. We didn't. We lost before that the, the Senate, the House and the White House. Uh, we've got to start getting back to a party that, uh, that, that, that people will vote for or we don't get to govern. When you look at your effort to try to get the Republican Party to come back to its conservative roots, you're facing a lot of obstacles. There's a a big battle over what the truth is. And the recent Dominion lawsuit against the Fox News, the Fox Corporation, is one example of how there's a real battle over whether election fraud happened or not. All these false claims of fraud are out there right now in the political discussion, especially on the right. What's your response to the Dominion lawsuit against Fox News? And what does that reveal about the Republican Party and perhaps Fox News? Well, I don't know all the details of the Dominion lawsuit, but I'm certainly following the controversy. And it's not it doesn't come as a surprise because for years we've had people uh, who, you know, I would hear from elected officials and leaders of the party and people in Congress or fellow governors or uh, people in conservative media that would say privately something. I I was always telling the truth and I was, uh, you know, sometimes criticized for it. But I always stood up and said exactly what I thought. People would say to me, oh, I agree with what you're saying but I can't say it. Or they would, uh, you know, they would be, you know, they would know the truth, but say something different just to win votes. And I think that's part of the problem. And I think we've got to get back to uh, truth telling and uh, we've got to stop the conspiracy theories. It's why we lost all the elections in, 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 in this last race. I mean, the people that were spouting election lies and that were saying that nothing happened on January 6th or that the, the, the pandemic was, was fake, the virus didn't happen. 
oh, they all lost. And the people who actually won were the common sense conservative Republicans like me, uh, who were actually able to win swing votes and that were talking about issues like the economy, like crime and education. They were focused on things people cared about. We can't keep looking backward and we can't keep you know, denying facts. Is Governor DeSantis somebody you could see yourself supporting as the non-Trump candidate in your party? Well, look, the people of Florida just overwhelmingly elected Ron DeSantis. I've said earlier uh, that I think governors is, uh, are a good training ground to become president. We have a lot of great governors to consider. I, you know, maybe Ron DeSantis and I have different styles, uh, but, uh, you know, certainly uh, he's, he's got every right to get out there and make the case. Where do you stand on Governor DeSantis's efforts to counter Disney and its self-governing zone in Florida. The controversy to me it was about telling a business uh, that if you don't agree with me, I'm going to put you out of business or take it over. And I'm a, I'm a traditional kind of small government conservative Republican who doesn't believe in heavy-handed you know, local governments telling businesses what to do. So we come at it from a different perspective. It's not about the, the, the issues themselves that they were fighting over, but how, how it's being handled, I would disagree with. He's talking about his battles with what he calls woke culture. What does the DeSantis approach tell you about his politics? Well, I think he's going right after the, the Trump base, and he wants to be, I think, the younger uh, you know, uh, version of Donald Trump. And uh, you know, he's trying to fire up the base, which is okay, uh, and it may be a good strategy to win a primary. But my point was you, you have to actually focus on winning swing voters as well or you know, we'll have Joe Biden as president, and that's not what we need. How rough could it get, DeSantis versus Trump? Could it get rough, you know. Time will tell. It's going to be very interesting. Joe Biden uh, is not the guy who should be the next president, and I think most people would agree. But you can't beat somebody with nobody. We have to come up with the best candidate. You've been friendly with former Vice President Mike Pence. Someone you could support? Uh, yeah, absolutely. I, I have a tremendous amount of respect for Mike Pence, and, uh, and I thought he... Uh, I certainly, uh, you know, is the kind of guy, he's, he's full of integrity and experience. And if another potential contender is listening to you today, what do you hope they hear from this decision, from your move? I love competition and I hate coronations. My advice would be don't run just because you want to get your name known or you want to be on TV or you want to write a book or get a TV deal or because you want to be a cabinet secretary. You should only run if you believe that you're uh, capable and qualified and that you have a real chance to be the, not only the nominee, but the next president. We want to go now to Democratic Governor J.B. Pritzker of Illinois. Good morning to you, Governor. Good morning, Margaret. I have a lot to get to with you, but I want to get something out of the way. New York Times is a big feature on you, calling you the Democrats' SOS candidate, saying you're keeping your options open for a presidential run in 2024 in case Biden doesn't run. Is that true? No, I'm supporting Joe Biden. He's running for reelection and he's going to get reelected. I'm just, you know, happy that uh, people think of me in that way. That's certainly very flattering, but I intend to uh, serve out my term as governor of Illinois. Because you are, according to CBS reporting, um, potentially serving on an advisory board to the president if he does run for reelection. You might have heard Joe Manchin, who just told us uh, that it was kind of an open question as to who would be running. He said, let's see who all the players are. He didn't endorse the president. That surprise you? Well, I'm sorry to hear that. Um, it does surprise me a bit. Uh, I will say that, that uh, Joe Biden has an awful lot that he gets to run on here. Uh, he's gotten a, a tremendous amount done for the country, saved literally hundreds of thousands of lives by making sure that vaccines were distributed. Uh, he passed legislation in a bipartisan fashion. You know, we got uh, the IRA, which is going to help us fight climate change, uh, infrastructure, which is helping everybody across the country, the uh, Chips and Science Act, which is going to help us bring manufacturing back to the United States, and what is Joe Biden's superpower, and that is he demonstrates empathy in everything that he does. He truly cares about the American people. So do you think he needs to make it official and say he's running so that there isn't more speculation or people considering other options? I don't think there's anybody that's serious that's actually considering running against Joe Biden because he's done such a great job. Um, I want to ask you on the issue set uh, that Democrats are, are running on. Um, 
Your office told told us you're very focused on school board races in Illinois to make sure extreme right wing candidates aren't dominating them. Um, I'm wondering how strong the Republican ground operation is on things like school boards. Is, Is parents rights really something you think Democrats need to be concerned about on a national scale? Well, what Republicans are trying to do is, of course, ban books in libraries. They're trying to keep our schools from teaching black history. Uh, They make up things about CRT uh, in schools that just don't exist. And so they've got a lot of extreme right wing candidates, frankly, on the crazy end of things that are running. And we just want to make sure that people know who they are and know not to vote for them. All right, Governor, there's a lot I want to get to with you on the other side of this commercial break. So please stay with us and we'll be right back. If you can't watch the full face the nation, you can set your DVR or we're available on demand. Plus, you can watch us through our CBS or Paramount Plus app. And we're replayed on our CBS News streaming network throughout the day on Sundays at 1.30 p.m., 4 p.m. and 10 p.m. We'll be right back with a lot more face the nation. Stay with us. Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders, while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. Welcome back to Face the Nation. We want to continue our conversation now with Illinois Governor J.B. Pritzker. Uh, Governor, thank you for staying with us through the break. I want to follow up on something you said right before we took that break. You said you want to make sure people know who they are and not to vote for them. You were talking about Republicans, you said, trying to do things like ban teaching black history, ban books and ban CRT. Are you talking about people in Illinois? Who are you talking about? Where's that happening? Well, you asked You asked me about school boards, and I'm telling you, we've got people running at the local level who believe that. But of course, the Republicans are carrying this as a national message. And honestly, it's something that's offensive to most Americans, this idea of, of banning black history. It's important for people to understand the history of slavery in the United States, you know, and our our entire U.S. history, warts and all. Okay. In Florida, where I think you're gesturing to, they are not banning black history. It was specifically that AP college course. That's what you're referring to there, that version of it? Well, when they're trying to dive in uh, and take over an AP history exam and edit it and edit out parts that they don't like, that's banning history. That's what they're doing in Florida. That's what Ron DeSantis is doing. Okay, a potential 2024 candidate. I want to ask you about the issue of abortion, um, because I know you are one of 20 Democratic governors very much deeply involved in in trying to build a firewall here uh, against restrictions. Um, There's a Texas judge who may soon decide a case that could revoke the approval of the abortion pill, which is the most common kind of abortion in this country. If there is a ruling to restrict it, how will governors respond? What will you do? Well, in Illinois, we protect the other abortion drugs that are available, 
and we uh, protect women's right to um, express their reproductive freedom. And so we're helping our clinics in Illinois. We're making sure that all the refugees from the states around us that have banned abortion know that there's an oasis here in the Midwest, here in the state of Illinois, to protect their health and their reproductive rights. Well, Walgreens is an Illinois-based pharmacy. I know you called in their CEO, Roz Brewer, for a meeting on Friday. They had announced um, they won't sell abortion pills in states in which Republican attorneys general have threatened legal action. Uh, can you get them to change the policy? And um, that they're still waiting, I guess, on certification to sell the pill in Illinois itself. Can you get them approval? Well, that's something that happens at the federal level, but I offered to them to work with the federal government to try to speed up the process of certification. They want to certify it in Illinois and they want to be able to sell it here. So uh, we're going to help in any way that they ask us to. Uh, but look, on, on a broader scale, we should just recognize that uh, these pharmacies need to protect women's health. That is the business that they should be in. And so in states where it's legal to have an abortion and legal to sell an abortion pill, they should still be doing it. And I've told them that um, we need to make sure that the other pharmacies do the same. Mm -hmm. Well, we'll be following that. I want to ask you as well about uh, crime as an issue for Democrats. Uh, in the city of Chicago, the mayor, Lori Lightfoot, just failed to make the runoff in the Democratic primary. She was challenged by a former school CEO backed by a police union and the Cook County commissioner who was endorsed by the Chicago Teachers Union. So I'm wondering what the takeaway message is here for Democrats. Is it don't take on the teachers unions as she did, or is it to focus more on violent crime? Well, it was a messy primary. There's no doubt about it. Nine candidates. Nobody got 50 percent or anywhere near 50 percent. Uh, so we have a runoff coming up. Um, I think that these two candidates have to make sure that their messages are clear, what they're going to do to protect health care, what they're going to do to address crime. Uh, frankly, they have mm -hmm. not been specific on a lot of these issues, and I'm asking them to be. Governor, thank you very much for your time today. Thanks, Margaret. We turn now to Ohio Congressman Brad Wenstrup, who chairs the Select Subcommittee on the Coronavirus Pandemic. Doctor, welcome to the program. Thank you. Uh, there are 18 different intelligence agencies in this country, no consensus on COVID's origins, two intel agencies undecided, four say it was natural transmission. And then last week we learned that the Energy Department has joined the FBI in saying the virus likely spread through a mishap at a Chinese lab. Is all of the evidence circumstantial? Have you seen the intelligence? I've seen quite a bit of intelligence, as you might imagine, sitting on the Intelligence Committee. We haven't seen all that we want to see necessarily, and some of it is very classified that I have seen. And so we have to continue driving forward and getting questions answered because the more we find, the more questions that we may have. So you do have a variety of, of opinions, and really what we are trying to do is to follow the breadcrumbs, if you will. Look at the forensics of what took place. Obviously, this is one of the more serious things that ever has ever happened to mankind. And so it is important to find the origins of COVID. Do you expect the FBI and the Energy Department to testify to your committee? Uh, that, there may come a time for that. Uh, I would hope that they do it willingly. So if this was indeed the result of a lab leak, what is Congress doing to prevent this from ever happening again? I'm hoping at the end of the day with the subcommittee that we have a bipartisan product that can really help us uh, with our readiness going into the future. I keep using uh, a variety of, of terms that we want to be able to predict a pandemic. We want to prepare for a pandemic. We want to protect ourselves from a pandemic and hopefully prevent a pandemic. And, and that should be our goal. And we're going to have to work with a lot of scientists and specialists to be able to do that. But we have to get to the truth of what actually happened in this pandemic. Well, in terms of the specifics, I know the White House is said to be considering recommendations from the National Science Advisory Board for Biosecurity to um, put oversight on gain of function experiments. Those are the things that, I guess, genetically alter a virus to enhance its function and maybe make it more deadly. This was allegedly what was happening at this lab in Wuhan. Um, would you want this kind of regulation? And does that come from the White House? Or does that come from Congress? 
Well, it may be a combination of both at the end of the day, and I think it is important that we do that. Look, if we were taking taxpayer dollars to fund research, not only in the United States, but in China, concerning this type of methodology, the creation of a chimera, or it's called gain-of-function research, where you can take two viruses and put them into one, I don't see a whole lot of commercial use for that necessarily, so it's something that if it's going to take place, it certainly should have oversight or should have had oversight. In 2015, Ralph Barrick in North Carolina, along with Dr. Zengli Shi in China, published their article about the ability to create these chimeras, and they did that. So we know that this technology exists. My real question is, why are we doing this with an adversary like China? And we have to look into what the reasoning was for that and what actually took place, where the money went, and why did it go there? Well, I know that there has been a lot of focus on Dr. Fauci, who has since retired um, from NIH. And I wonder if you think that is misplaced to personalize the scrutiny so much when the intelligence agencies are all so divided. I mean, can you reasonably probe this question in a bipartisan way um, without villainizing people? Well, I think that's the goal. I mean, I just want to get to facts. And when I was asked to chair this select subcommittee, one of the first things I did was call Dr. Raul Ruiz, Democrat from California, emergency physician. As physicians, we have worked on many bills together and we get along very well. We may disagree on a lot of other policies, but we, we work very well together, especially when it comes to health. I think a lot of people would welcome just sticking to the facts, which is why I want to ask you uh, about the membership on your committee, because you have Marjorie Taylor Greene on it. She shared misleading information about deaths and COVID vaccines. She compared vaccines to Nazis forcing Jews to wear gold stars. Dr. Ronnie Jackson, who said masks never worked. He called the Omicron variant the midterm election variant. How do people take your committee work seriously with members like this on it? Well, I think we have a lot of serious members that, uh, on both sides of the aisle that are, are just after the truth. Uh, I think that, that they come from a variety of backgrounds. Look, there were things that were, were said, hey, this is a conspiracy theory. Stop this conspiracy theory that it may have come from the lab. Well, now you have agencies that are coming forward and saying that we do think it came from the lab. Look, we have to conduct ourselves in a way that is professional, and I hope that we will. I can't control everybody, and yeah. that goes on both sides of the aisle. Dr. Ruiz can't, can't either. But at the same time, what I'm seeing from, from all the members is that they have backgrounds of severe interest, significant interest. They either owned a business, they're healthcare providers, mm -hmm. they're concerned about the adverse events that may come from the vaccine. These are legitimate things for Americans to be concerned about. And okay. through this process, I think we took doctors out of the equation all too often and left it up to non-physicians to tell America how to treat themselves. You're from Ohio, so I, I want to make sure I ask you about what was a second train derailment from Norfolk Southern in your state yesterday on top of this toxic one. Um, President Biden has praised some of the bipartisan legislation in the Senate that would up railway safety. Do you see a need for this kind of legislation right now? Well, certainly in any after action review or review of something that happened, if we see that there's some gaps in our safety, then we should take a look at that. Uh, let's not put things out there that aren't necessarily facts and say that there was a safety issue if it wasn't. But at the same time, you do want to address these issues. Look, we're always trying to do better. I hope that we can. And uh, the other thing that I would like to see come out of all this, especially with the, the one where there was such a chemical toxic reaction and with the fires that were started from the derailment is do we have a standard operating procedure of how we manage a community, what our reaction is from the government, what are we looking for, how do we protect our people? Let's make sure that we have a good standard operating procedure. So although these instances are rare, according to the numbers, uh, we have to be prepared for that 0.1% or whatever the case may be. All right, Dr. Wenstrup, we'll be watching the hearing this week. Thanks for your time. And we are back now with former FDA commissioner and Pfizer board member, Dr. Scott Godley. Good morning. Welcome back. Good to see you. 
Um, Good morning. <laughs> Dr. Gottlieb, uh, I wanted you to sort of give us some context here, because I know you've said in the past on this program that we will likely never know the origin of COVID-19, short of finding the exact animal that carried the virus or a smoking gun proving that it accidentally leaked out of the lab. You said both theories were plausible. Has anything changed that makes you more certain now? Well, look, I think that there's enough information in the public domain to create a presumption that this could have come out of a lab, maybe a strong presumption. Uh, we have seen some incremental reporting. There's classified information that hasn't been made public. You heard the congressman even refer to classified information that even Congress hasn't seen uh, in this instance. And I think based on that premise that there's a you know, likelihood that this came out of a lab, we may never be able to prove it with certainty. We should start behaving like it did come out of a lab and start taking the steps to make sure that that couldn't happen again. There's a lot of things that happened around the labs in China, particularly the WIV in Wuhan, the Wuhan Institute of Virology, that created sloppy conditions. They were doing high-risk research in low-level, low-security labs. Um, they were doing risky research. You heard the congressman talk about the gain-of-function research that was going on in that lab. We know the Chinese military was operating in that lab simultaneously. So we need to look at all those things. I would be focusing on the activities in and around that lab and deriving from that what steps we need to take going forward to make sure that we get better security around high-risk research so that if this did come out of a lab, it's, it's not going to happen again. Mm -hmm. And we've talked on this program to Matt Pottinger, who served in the Trump administration, who said intelligence needs to be a, a more robust part of pandemic um, protection. And I know you agree with that. Um, you know, there was a piece in The New York Times by David Wallace Wells, an opinion piece called We've Been Talking About the Lab Leak Theory All Wrong. And the argument is that lean into the lab theory and just look at how to prevent lab leaks. He's calling for things like a re national registration on research based on risks and benefits, new safety standards, global governance to go with this as well. Why doesn't that exist and why isn't that being created? Yeah, I think it should be. I mean, we're three years into this. There is some recommendations that are on the president's desk. I think we need to start getting serious and looking at what steps need to be put into place. You know, we're still stuck on the debate about whether it was or wasn't a lab leak. I don't think we're going to prove that. I think we should work on the assumption that there's a probability that it was a lab leak and start putting in place the kinds of protections that we need. The congressman talked about gain-of-function research. He made the point that there isn't a real commercial prerogative for doing that kind of research. I agree with him. We ought to look at whether we outlaw that kind of research. And certainly, if it's going to take place, conduct it in BSL-4 labs, high-security labs under very strict conditions where we know what's going on, and don't outsource it to labs in China. Sometimes the highest-risk experiments get outsourced to the worst labs around the world because they're the ones willing to do those experiments. And so if we're going to do high-risk research because we think it's important from a national security standpoint, and that's the only context in which this would make sense, there really isn't a commercial context in which this would make sense, uh, we need to get better control over it. And to Matt's point, Matt Pottinger's point, we need to get the intelligence agencies engaged in this as a national security as a part of their national security mission and look at public health preparedness through a national security lens. I think we're doing that now, but we need to be very explicit about that. And that does mean also surveillance around some of the high risk activities that can create these kinds of risks. So but that's the White House and that's the intelligence agencies rather than a congressional mandate. Look, Congress certainly has a role here. I think that Congress could start coming up with a list of recommendations to the administration. The administration has recommendations from independent bodies. Ultimately, this is going to be federal um, rules that get imposed on research that gets funded by the federal government, as well as what we try to do through international conventions, working with the WHO and the World Health Assembly to try to get international agreements in place on what countries are and aren't going to be willing to do. Now, you can't prevent rogue regimes from doing this kind of research. That's where the intelligence agencies come in to do monitoring um, to see if rogue regimes are doing high-risk research that could create conditions for a lab leak, either inadvertently or deliberately. Mm -hmm. And the Biden administration has called on China to release more information, and they have not delivered it. Dr. Fauci talked about that in November on this program. Uh, I also want to ask you about what we just learned uh, about President Biden's health. He had this uh, skin cancer diagnosis, a basal cell carcinoma lesion removed. Given his age, is there any reason to worry more about it? 
There's no reason to be concerned about this particular lesion. This is a slow-growing cancer, usually confined to the surface of the skin that can be completely excised with a small surgical procedure. It sounds like the president had this fully removed. It shouldn't recur. It typically doesn't spread. Um, these kinds of lesions typically occur in regions of the body that are exposed to sun. It is related to exposure to UV light. So typically you see it on the neck or the face. Um, just for awareness, it's not like a melanoma where it appears as a very dark, irregular lesion. Typically it will appear as sort of a clear and waxy kind of lesion, maybe scaly. So it mm -hmm. has a different kind of appearance. But the president should be fully cured of this um, through a small surgical procedure to remove it. Dr. Gottlieb, always good to talk to you. We'll be right back with a look at the anniversary of a major milestone in the civil rights movement. Ah. The comfort of your favorite seat is now your comfy car selling command center. Thanks to Carvana. It doesn't get any better than this. Your favorite seat's the best spot in the house. Make it even better by entering your license plate or VIN and getting a real offer in minutes. There really is no place like home. And speaking of home, Carvana will pick up your car from yours after you finalize your offer. Visit Carvana.com or download the app and sell your car from your comfy place. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. President Biden will travel to Selma, Alabama later today to commemorate the 58th anniversary of Bloody Sunday, a landmark event for the civil rights movement and for the late Congressman John Lewis. In 2015, our Bob Schieffer visited Selma with John Lewis and crossed the legendary Edmund Pettus Bridge. This week marks 50 years since the shooting of Jimmy Lee Jackson, whose death at the hands of a highway patrolman at a peaceful protest inspired one of the iconic events of the civil rights movement, the Selma, Alabama March. Movement leaders had chosen Selma as the place to dramatize the demand for the right to vote. After Jackson's death, a 54-mile march from Selma to Montgomery was planned. Fiery young activist John Lewis was one of the leaders. We are marching to our state capital to dramatize to our nation and to the world our determination to win first-class citizenship. But the march was not to be. The protesters ran into trouble soon after they started as they tried to cross the Edmund Pettus Bridge. I had never been to Selma, but with the anniversary of that march looming, I went there yesterday and walked across that bridge with now Congressman John Lewis and asked him what was going through his mind on that fateful day. We were marching in twos in an orderly, peaceful, nonviolent fashion on our way to Montgomery to dramatize to the nation that people wanted to register to vote. I, I really thought we would be arrested and jailed that day. When did you realize, when you got to the high point here, that's when you saw all of the law enforcement people down there? Uh, we, we saw down below the state troopers, and behind the state troopers, the sheriff posse on horseback. You have to disperse. And we got to the, the bottom of the bridge. See that they turn around and disperse. And they came toward us, beating us with knife sticks, using tear gas and tramping us with horses. You were right in the front. And I was in the very front. So you were among the first that was hit. I, I was the first person to be hit, and I still have the scar on my forehead. And um, I was knocked down. Um, my legs just went out from under me. Uh, I thought I was going to down this bridge. Uh, I said to myself, this is the last protest for me. What happened? Do you remember anything after that? I remember being back at the church. I don't even recall how I got back to the church, but apparently someone carried me back. And I guess I become conscious and someone asked me to say something to the audience and I stood up and said, I don't understand it. How President Johnson can send troops to Vietnam and cannot send troops to Selma, Alabama to protect people 
who only desires to register to vote. And then, in a matter of weeks, of course, he did send the troops, and you were able to make that march to Selma. There is no cause for pride in what has happened in Selma. Their cause must be our cause, too. Yeah, two weeks later, after President Johnson delivered that speech, we did make the march all the way from Selma to Montgomery. It was a sea of humanity marching on this highway. And you, you did have people protecting you then, all uh, the way? All the way, people inspecting the bridges along the way, guarding the camps that night. It was, it was our military. It was our military at, the, at its best. You know, Congressman, a lot of people who were not there, who, who didn't know how it was, they don't know how different it is now. Well, it is, it's, a different, it's a different world. Back in 1965, only 2.1% of blacks of voting age were registered to vote in this county. You had to go down to the county courthouse. It was the only place you could attempt to register on the first and third Mondays of each month. You had to pass a so-called literacy test. There are people who asked to count the number of bubbles in a bar of soap, the number of jelly beans in a jar. People stood in unmovable lines. So things are better, but not as good as they ought to be, I guess. Things are much better, but we're not there yet. We still have problems, and we'll make it. We, we will get there. Selma was the turning point. We'll be right back. That's it for us today. Thank you for watching. Until next week, for Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were West Virginia Democratic Senator Joe Manchin, Ohio Republican Congressman Brad Winstrom, former FDA Commissioner Dr. Scott Gottlieb, former Governor of Maryland, Republican Larry Hogan, and Democratic Governor of Illinois, J.B. Pritzker. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Shelley Schwartz. Face the Nation originates in CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com and you can follow Face the Nation and CBS Radio News on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Face the Nation is also rebroadcast on our CBS News streaming network on Sundays at 1.30, 4, 10 p.m. Eastern, and again at 4 a.m. the next morning. And it's available through our apps, CBS News and Paramount+. Plus. It was the biggest scandal in pop music. The stars of Milli Vanilli, the Grammy-winning multi-platinum R&B phenomenon, were exposed as frauds. But none of this was their idea. So whose idea was it? Enter German music producer Frank Varian. He saw the success of acts like Michael Jackson and Prince, and he wanted in, no matter the cost. So he devised the perfect pop heist. Two once-in-a-lifetime talents who were charismatic, full of sex appeal, and phenomenal dancers. The only problem? They couldn't sing. But Frank knew just how to fix that. Wondery's new podcast, Blame It on the Fame, dives into one of pop music's greatest controversies and takes a never-before-heard look at the exploitation of two young Black artists. Millie Vanilli set the world on fire, but when the truth came out, Rob and Fab were the only ones who got burned. Looking back now, it's hard not to wonder, why did everyone blame them and not the man pulling the strings? Follow Blame It on the Fame, Millie Vanilli, on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge all episodes of Blame It on the Fame early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery+. Plus. Hi, this is Jill Schlesinger, CBS News business analyst, certified financial planner, and host of the Money Watch podcast. This is the show where your money is not scary. It is a show that's all about you. It's your questions that make it possible for me to provide unconventional and entertaining insights on your money and maybe more importantly, on your life. Follow Money Watch wherever you get your podcasts. You can listen ad-free on the Amazon Music or Wondery app.